Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. Something a little different today. I am talking with my esteemed colleague, whom many of you know, Dr. Justine Walker. Justine is head of global sanctions and risk at ACAMS and a podcaster in her own right as host of the excellent Sanction Space podcast series. She's also hosting our first ACAMS Global Sanction Summit on March 2nd and 3rd with speakers representing the White House, the United Nations, OFAC, the World Bank, and many other institutions. So in this special episode, I talk with Justine about the big changes happening right now in the world of sanctions that are going to inform that conference. It's an interesting and complex world we're living in right now, and I know I'm looking forward to both hearing from her now and attending the Sanction Summit myself. Here we go. Well, it's really exciting for me to be here today with my colleague, Justine Walker. We don't do this regularly, Justine. I think it seems like a critical thing to do right now, given all the things that are happening in the sanctions world. And I know a lot of those are things that you're going to address on March 2nd and March 3rd with the Sanctions Space Summit. Why is this such a pivotal time in the sanctions world right now? It is great fun to be speaking to you. And you're right, we just don't get the chance to do this too often. So this is fun from my point of view. And it is a really pivotal time. I always talk about the scale and pace of change. And it has been true now for quite a few years. If we're looking at February of 2021, we've just had the US presidential election. We always see sanctions policy pausing in many ways ahead of the election, particularly out with the US, because people await and see what happens. But this year was really unusual in many ways, because between the election in November and the end of December, we saw this huge amount of sanctions, actually nearly a quarter of the sanctions for last year were imposed during that spell. Which is kind of unprecedented, right? It's really unprecedented. I mean, and I covered this in um, a podcast with John Smith and Jennifer Fowler recently around just how unusual that is and what that means and the challenges. But essentially what it means for all of us is that we've had all these new sanctions coming online, whilst there's also a handover of administration. We talked about this being a game changer election in terms of sanctions policy. And that game changer was not about whether it was a Biden or Trump win. It was just a recognition that really we were at a very pivotal time. The use of sanctions has grown incredibly. The complexity of sanctions, the reach of US person globally, the use of secondary sanctions, these are all elements which have just escalated continually over recent years. And that has resulted in some pushback from other jurisdictions and counter sanctions, blocking regulations. So it's been a bit of the perfect storm in many ways that it's all come together. And now we are facing a bit of uncertainty in the sanctions world in what will be the Biden policy towards sanctions. You know, we know there's a sanctions policy review being undertaken. So not only do you have the executive branch um, playing this critical role in defining sanctions policy, you also have to look at everything through the congressional lens. And, you know, you mentioned about the sanctions space summit. And, and it's for this reason, you know, we've brought in both the White House, OFAC, but also policy director from the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs, because, you know, you have to recognize you can't look at it through just one lens now. You have to look at it through multiple lenses. So it is an interesting time to be involved in sanctions, no doubt about it. 
The Trump administration had a really definite direction it was going in. The Biden administration seems to have other ideas. Can you delineate a few of those? And practically, what does it mean for financial institutions? Uh, maybe a different focus on Iran. Already, the sanctions involving Yemen have been pulled back. Will there be lesser use of secondary sanctions as a result of that? Or is that just part of that whole thing that's baked into the pie now? So these are questions that everybody is asking. And I think the reality is we actually just don't know the answer to that at the moment. We can definitely know there's going to be a difference. Under the Trump administration, we saw maximum impact campaigns. There was a real desire to use sanctions and be willing to use them in a very unilateral sense. And we saw that with the US withdrawal from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. We saw it with the sanctions on China, with Venezuela. So there was definitely a unilateral willingness to use sanctions. It's very clear that the Biden administration will look for a more cooperative transatlantic approach on sanctions, that they'll definitely look to engage partners, look at where there is commonality, whether that's China, Russia or Iran. I also think that we've started to go down a road that we're not going to see any major change. You know, if we look at China sanctions, for example, I think there will be a potentially a more considered approach. But the Trump administration moved ahead with a lot of human rights sanctions, and they were very much at the forefront of pushing forwards on human rights sanctions. This is not going to be something that the Biden administration will pull back on. The questions now will be about how does that sit? Is there some transatlantic like-minded partnership that can be taken forwards on China human rights concerns? Is there other aspects that should be considered? They're going to continue down that road. But you raise secondary sanctions. You know, we're doing a lot of work around secondary sanctions, actually. At the moment, we're doing some work with the Atlantic Council and others looking at what do secondary sanctions mean? How are non-US partners responding? And I would draw out two elements here. One is it's really important to be aware of just how broad the scope of US primary sanctions have become. Primary sanctions now have much greater scope than they had four or five years ago. We've seen some enforcement action, which has definitely laid the groundwork, whether that's the CETA case, which people may have heard about, where it was to do with where your technology, your web-based servers are based. And there's been other cases as well. So primary sanctions have definitely grown. But we see the tool of secondary sanctions being incorporated within many pieces of congressional legislation now, whether that's on Syria, some of the potential Hong Kong sanctions, whether it's um, Iran. But they're actually very rarely enforced against. So the enforcement against of use of secondary sanctions is actually quite minimal. But the fear is very, very complex. And what that triggers is this legal challenge and conflicts of law scenarios, which has really pushed forwards, whether it's the China blocking regulation that we've seen or the EU blocking regulation and the use of civil litigation. So what secondary sanctions in my mind has done is done two things. One is it's really increased the fear of uncertainty around sanctions. But the other aspect is it's fueled legal differences of opinion. You know, can you withdraw from a contract based on secondary sanctions or not? And we're just seeing so many civil litigations around this. And I think that is going to grow in future years. So there's a lot there to pick up on. Well, that gives a lot of uh, material for you to drill down on too, doesn't it? I want to move a little bit beyond the U.S. picture a little bit. And can you 
make clear, particularly for those who are looking from afar, what's happening with AFSI. There's a new chief there. There's a lot of talk about how the UK will carve out its own sanctions regime. Well, I don't even think there's a lot of talk. It's begun to happen. There will be more enforcement actions coming out of AFSI. Yes. So obviously with the UK's withdrawal from the EU, the UK has had to put in a new autonomous sanctions regime. So they have had to create their own legal framework, look at their powers. And really at the moment, things are pretty aligned to the EU side. You know, that was always going to be the case on day one of formal Brexit, formal departure from the EU, that the UK would follow the, to most all intents and purposes, the EU framework, but with some noticeable differences. It's really going to be about how that evolves. And the noticeable differences I would flag by way of the legislative framework, the language in the UK sanctions legislation, is it takes different approaches to how you would maybe define aspects around financial transactions, around scope. And sanctions compliance is all about technical details. You have the geopolitical, you have the general, what's the purpose of the sanctions? And then you have to look at the legal frameworks. And, you know, now having a new player on the block, as I like to describe it, is you have to consider this new framework, both in how it impacts your sanctions compliance today, how you treat your UK operations, whether you have EU persons, do you need to revisit your global policies to look at what may be appropriate now than what it was prior to Brexit? The other aspect is what does this mean in going forwards? Now, you know, you talked about the offices, they have new leadership. I think that's just part of the course, particularly of government agencies. The leadership will change every few years anyway. It's quite a different type of animal to OFAC. What I do think we're seeing now is a more concerted action to join up the UK's policy arm of Treasury and the enforcement arm and to ensure that that is coordinated. But the ultimate legislation, legislative framework in many ways, sits with the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office. So it's not just one department in the UK holding all responsibility here. And we have other departments which also have enforcement powers, but absolutely OFSI is the main enforcement arm. But what I would say is moving forwards, if we're looking at what's going to be the priorities and the UK priorities, it's very clear the messaging coming from ministers at the moment as human rights is going to be much more critical. We've already seen a willingness to use the UK tool autonomously. I suspect we will see more autonomous use of the tool, potentially more alignment between the US and the UK on sanctions regimes. China and Russia might be key ones which spring to mind, Myanmar also. You know, I think you will start to see cooperative arrangements happening. The question mark, which we have to see how it plays out, is whether we will see the US, UK and the EU manage to align in a similar way. And what I always say to people, where there is common foreign policy objectives, people will cooperate. It's just whether the legal frameworks and the political debates behind that allows them to cooperate at a similar time. Well, I think you started to get into one of the next things I was thinking about. I think you did sort of imply there may be more enforcement actions in the new OFSI. Yeah, there will be more enforcement actions. I think you can only expect that to happen. Something for financial institutions to look forward to. Where does the EU fit into this? And you're saying it may be that there is an alliance with the US, the UK, and the EU. Does the EU have other priorities and other fish to fry, as we say, that might make that not so? 
what you need to think about the EU is they also have to coordinate across all their members. You know, the internal mechanics for the EU, they can move very, very quickly where everybody is aligned. But that can definitely happen quickly. But if there's not full alignment, it can take a while for the political process in the EU to move as fast as a autonomous sanctions regime. I think you will start to see some parallel action being taken by way of sanctions frameworks. Some of the key questions, I suppose, within the EU side is, you know, who's going to be the main driver now of sanctions? Because the UK was the main proposer of sanctions in the EU. But I would expect you'll see other EU members stepping up and taking a more robust role in that and shaping the EU's foreign policy dialogue in this area. We saw a report come out last month from the EU on their future resilience, which actually put quite a bit of emphasis around enhancing the robustness of EU sanctions, more coordination, better approaches to enforcement action. So, you know, they are certainly looking at their own sanctions framework through a more detailed lens now and looking to become more robust. So I think there could be more robust enforcement on the horizon from the EU as well. Well, you know, I was going to save this a little bit later in the conversation, but I guess we're talking about these big sanctions regimes and what's the potential that in five years or less, I don't know, that we're going to see a big China sanctions regime. Certainly lots of movement on China's part to respond to what it feels as unjust or interfering sanctions from the U.S. and others with regards to the human rights things and some kind of counter sanctions. What should we expect? I always used to be quite good at predicting the future for sanctions, and I've become significantly less good at that. And if you'd asked me this question 18 months ago, China, Hong Kong wouldn't have featured nearly as greatly as it obviously does today. I'm going to be quite careful in my response to this. The US and China are both very cautious players. They're the two biggest major economies. So the decisions they make impacts every single line of their global operations. We've seen the China implementing some more robust, potentially counter sanctions, whether it's their own denied entities list, whether it's their own blocking regulation. But they've been very measured in how they've approached that. Definitely looking at that as a long term resilience. So I think what China is doing at the moment is really building its infrastructure so it can be more resilient to unilateral sanctions. What the US is doing at the moment, I suspect, is really looking at, you know, this is where we're at. We have quite a lot of sanctions in place at the moment, which have been quite difficult to implement. And we've really upped the game here. What's the next step? And it is a bit like a game of chess, I think. It is how each other responds is really going to trigger a series of events. And I think we're in a bit of a pause moment. And I think if you ask this question, and maybe in about six months, it's going to be easier to respond to that. But certainly the US sanctions policy review will be analysing this in detail. At the sanctions summit, we have a number of panels looking at the growth of human rights sanctions, both around China, but globally. And what does that mean? You know, we're having people looking at, you know, from a digital technology point of view, what is the digital trade wars that we're seeing? You know, all these sort of scenarios we've had around WeChat, TikTok, etc. Is this the landscape for the future? And the difficulty for both the US and China is how do they disentangle themselves from each other? How do they really manage to be resilient 
we are so globalized now. So much of the Chinese tech sector is reliant on US elements and vice versa. So I think as we get into more detail and more complexity around the future sanctions landscape, policy officials are really going to have to up their game and look at much more detail. What does this really mean? How is this going to impact global trade? How do we roll back from this? Because sanctions have to have a way of rolling back. What is this sort of argument between these two superpowers? You know, what are we going to be putting at the forefront here? How are we going to be dealing with Hong Kong democratization? So there's a lot of bigger and wider conversations than just sanctions, and they will all influence each other. Very interesting stuff as you lay it out on the global situation right now, and, and particularly involving China and the U.S. As you said, there needs to also be with sanctions some rolling back. That leads to a broad question that may have some specific ramifications involving, say, Iran and North Korea. When do we have too many sanctions, and what are effective sanctions? And do you expect anything new with regard to Iran? You know, the Biden administration wants to be in a different place than the Trump administration was, and North Korea. On Iran, you know, and it comes back to your opening comments, we're at a very pivotal moment in time now. We all know that the Biden administration have put on the table their desire to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal or to maybe not necessarily rejoin the original deal, but to certainly have a deal back on the table. But in order for that to happen, they have made it quite clear that Iran needs to be in compliance with their commitments under the nuclear deal. Iran has indicated everybody else has violated the deal. They didn't get the economic incentivization that they saw, the engagement to the, whether it be global trade or global financial infrastructure that they had hoped under the original nuclear deal. They have started taking forwards activities which potentially or indeed does put them in breach in some ways. There has been the dispute resolution mechanism triggered between both Iran and the EU. So what you have at the moment is this very complex dynamics between what will the US do, what will Iran do, what will the EU and the UK do? And you've got to remember, Iran has elections coming up quite soon. So they're going to have to show something on the table on why should they trust the Biden administration? What could a new nuclear deal offer them to come back to the table? And how do they come back to the table and enter a new deal and save face? You know, this is going to be very, very important for the Iranians and what is going to be on everybody's mind is will a new deal survive a next presidential term? Are we four years under the current Biden administration? Is this an eight year administration? You know, how long is this administration going to be? How long will this deal be? What are the lessons learned from the Iran nuclear deal? First time round, where were the real challenges? Because that deal, there was a lot wrong with that deal. You know, let's not forget, it was very, very challenging. Remaining US primary sanctions had a major chilling effect. Iran will have learned from that and they will come back to the table and want to renegotiate something which gives them absolutely more certainty. But the US are going to have to show strength as well. They're not going to want to be showing to giving everything to Iran. If we thought the first deal was diplomatically challenging to negotiate, I think this deal is potentially going to be even more diplomatically challenging. And there's going to have to be a lot of goodwill and somebody's need to make the move. And again, Congress are going to be quite critical. You know, within the sanction summit, we've brought together both White House people, Congress, but also EU foreign policy advisers. 
those involved looking at both the UK and the EU diplomatic response to Iran, because there are many shifting elements here that we're going to have to really navigate the way forward. And on North Korea, well, I don't really know what is the next step for North Korea, to be quite honest. We have seen the parading of some rather lovely missiles through North Korea. Their own talks with the US didn't go the way they had hoped them to go. The US is probably back to where we were about two years ago with North Korea. I think we're back to that position. Whether there's something that they can pick up in the short term, I don't know. But it's going to come down to bandwidth. We have a lot of regimes on the table at the moment, a lot of discussions around what's the direction of travel for China? How do we potentially look at a new nuclear deal for Iran. Where is Russia sitting? Where is Venezuela sitting? How to deal with the complexities of Syria? There's going to be a bandwidth issue here of actually looking at any real ability in a meaningful way to put an awful lot of resources into these sanctions regimes and actually achieve the results that we would want to achieve within the next presidential term. Yes, uh, you've laid out a lot of concerns, uh, including whether or not we'll be able to sleep at night about some of these things, I think. Helping folks to sleep out there in the financial institutions and the corporations that have to deal with the sanctions regime. As we conclude, what kind of advice do you think is important for them to embrace around navigating these different sanctions regimes and, as you said, the vast complexity of these sanctions regimes? I always like to put them into two buckets in my mind. I look at the regimes which are more stable regimes where you see a definite trajectory that you can map. So Sudan would have been one of those regimes. You know, we had a framework, you know, the rules were fairly consistent and we've had a roadmap for sanctions easing. So that is really looking at what are the changes, what is the sanctions easing, how do we ensure our systems and controls are just able to respond to that. And then you have another bucket, which are the very geopolitical fluid sanctions regimes. And I would absolutely put in that bucket China, Russia, Iran, potentially a couple of other regimes, potentially Venezuela as well, because we've seen so much change there. But maybe sits a little bit between the more stable and the more geopolitical one. So I do think you have to look at different sanctions regimes as what's driving that regime, what is likely to influence that regime. Do we understand the rules of the game of that regime? So under the China side, we're still having a lot of debate around things like how do you implement close name matches on the Chinese military companies list? How do you manage that? What's the actual scope of some of these sanctions? How do you look at some of the designations and ownership and control aspects? So for these newer, more geopolitical regimes, I think you have to look at them both as in the what are the rules, but where's the uncertainty and how may they change? because those regimes can change very, very quickly. And so my advice for the financial sector and indeed the wider business community is that it's so important to look at this through a geopolitical lens because it can change very rapidly as we have seen. But it's also really important to have the nuts and bolts in place. We still see so much enforcement action where actually it's been failings of things which we have known for a long time, whether it's around sanction screening and not having it set up properly, 
whether it's around lack of training that people were just entering into relationships that everybody knew was prohibited relationships but they were still engaging in that you still have to have the systems and controls working smoothly you have to put that in place and that covers you for all your sanctions regimes but by way of managing your direction of travel look at it through a bucket lens look at those which are more consistent which you can really establish much better risk appetite you know, really also have a way of responding very rapidly when rapid world events happen and we see significant changes because they do occur overnight and they often occur on a Friday is what I say to people as well. You wake up on a Saturday morning having to deal about, oh my goodness, how are we going to deal with these new sanctions? The other thing that we're seeing, and you alluded to it earlier with Yemen, is, you know, this on-off nature. We've seen a lot of decisions made in the latter Trump days and whether those decisions will remain or not, we are yet to be seen. But we're also seeing some jurisdictions where sanctions have been eased and potentially are going to be coming back in a fairly meaningful way. Myanmar would be one of those. There's a lot for people to navigate here. There certainly is. And Justine, I think you've given a great overview here. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to joining you March 2nd and 3rd for the Sanctioned Space Summit. And I also look forward to when we're on the ground again at an ACAMS conference and can chat face to face. But thank you so much for doing this. Kieran, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk here at ACAMS. I hope you liked what you heard and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.